Welcome to The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On The Purposeful Project podcast, we share real-life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music or anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can simply visit purposefulproject.com. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on today, Simon. Absolute pleasure. Tom, could you start off by telling our guests a little bit about yourself? Yeah, okay. So my name's Tom. I'm a farmer's son from Staffordshire. Both my brothers are back home farming. Um, I came down to London uh, 20 years ago, uh, worked as a management consultant, left that and set up my business, which is MoMA. So I'm the founder of MoMA. Um, We're a a breakfast food company and an oats company. And we specialize in porridge and now oat milk as well. So yeah, that's what we do. Porridge and oat milk in a nutshell. I was just reading you sold 10 million pounds worth of porridge in the last year alone. People seem to like porridge. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of porridges consumed. The, um, the uh, porridge is a great market. It's a real staple in the UK. It's particularly good in the UK compared to kind of other countries. It's a real UK favourite. Um, we specialise really in the convenience formats of porridge, so more on-the-go products. Um, and coronavirus is, has not been our friend actually this year. Um, so yeah, it's been a tough year from that point of view, but the porridge market generally in the UK is really buoyant. So how did you get into all this? Tell us, tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so my journey, like I said, Farmerston came down to London, worked as a management consultant, really wanted to do my own business. And I thought there was a gap in the breakfast market, um, a, a gap for a healthy filling breakfast uh, that you can have in the morning. Uh, at the time, there were croissants and muffins in coffee shops, but but not much else. And I used to walk over Waterloo Bridge every day to work and I'd have a smoothie with oats in that I'd make at home and I'd pour it into an old water bottle and walk over Waterloo Bridge. So I thought there was something in this, you know, a healthy filling breakfast for people. So I did my desktop research on it, kind of a few Mintel reports. Um, I sent a survey out to friends on SurveyMonkey to ask them what their breakfast eating habits were and what was important to them. And something that was filling, healthy uh, and tasty with the, with the important things and convenient as well. Um, so that's kind of what I set out to do, create a healthy, filling, on-the-go breakfast. Now, a lot of people talk about starting their own business. And let's face it, looking back at your career, you, you, you could have earned a lot of money working at companies like Bain. You worked there for a few years. I'm sure you could have just continued to earn a huge amount. How did you make that leap from you know, that well-secured, comfortable, perhaps, job and career path into this crazy world of starting something for yourself? Yeah, I know it's uh, it's a funny decision, and uh, you know you look back and wonder if it's the right thing sometimes. And, and for me, it was. I think it comes down to personal choice and your ambitions uh, in life and your appetite to be an entrepreneur, which is I think largely linked to your kind of appetite for risk. Um, for me, it was always something that I wanted to do. Um, I'm from quite a well farming background, but quite an entrepreneurial farming background. And it always seemed something that I was going to do. You know, going into consultancy was always an introduction to the working world for me. Um, I met some really inspiring people. Um, I learned quite a bit of stuff, um, but it was never what I was going to do long term. You know, I always wanted to set my own business up. So it didn't seem a big risk to me, actually, um, just because that was my kind of what I expected to do before I went into it. But it was, um, yeah, it was quite a big step. Yeah, again, I think that people can get trapped in the trappings of a job. 
So it's for a lot of people, a lot of my listeners, I know they want to start a business of their own. You know, with things like COVID, it's even harder, of course. People don't want to give up their stable income. Was it was it simply you had this idea and you just made a decision or were you searching for an idea to frankly quit what you were doing? Uh, so, no, I, I enjoyed my job. Uh, Bain was a great company. Uh, they treated me really well. They actually gave me some time off to look into this idea. Um, but I approached it from the point of view that it wasn't like a eureka moment and like, oh, I need to provide uh, porridge or oat milk or breakfast smoothies on the market. It was me actively deciding I wanted to set up my own business, not because I didn't like my job, but because that's what I wanted to do. And then thinking about what I could apply myself to and food and drinks kind of, it's very much in the public eye. It's very tangible. Uh, it's really touchy feely kind of sexy industry from that point of view. So it's a very easy thing to, to get into and it's a very attractive thing to get into. It, it's quite hard because of that, because there's a lot of competition. Um, so yeah, it was very much driven from the point of view of, I want to do my own thing. What can I think of to do? You weren't daunted by the food industry when, I mean, it's such a competitive space, isn't it? I think I was probably more naive than daunted. So I went, I was very green. I left my old job at 26, uh, set the business up at 27. Um, and no, I wasn't daunted. Um, and I think the, I think there's a, there's a beauty and a curse of kind of doing things when you're a bit younger. I think uh, negative side is you're not as experienced um, and therefore it might take it longer to, to make it work. The good side is uh, you don't have as many commitments. There's not as much opportunity cost of, you know, you probably haven't got a mortgage, you haven't got a family, that sort of thing, that stage. And also that kind of naivety can, can be really good sometimes. I'm sure a lot of the best inventions have been born out of people who are just to see risks within an industry so they'll go out there they'll try something and they'll battle away and they'll make something really work that people wouldn't have done otherwise um because you know, they've approached it with a slightly more naive but but fresher um point of view as well fair yeah i, th- I think that's a good insight for my listeners to pick up on i think the whole idea that you need to have experience in an industry it isn't true. I mean, Elon Musk, of course, has done space. He didn't know much about space. He just hires good people and learns on the job sort of thing. And it can bring a fresh perspective. It's a very good point, I think. And I want the listeners to pick up on it. So can we have a measure of you? I mean, how for, for my audience to understand, how do you measure success for you personally and for your business? Yeah, so for, for me personally, success is all about being fulfilled in life. Uh, and I, I split that quite clearly between kind of personal life and career. And for personal life, for me, it's about family and having a a loving family and kind of the opportunities and and fun times and confidence as a family. Um, And I'm really lucky on that front. Um, From a business point of view, it's about having a successful and fulfilling career as well. And that's different for different people. For me, going into business, um, there's an element, obviously, that's financial. Um, You know, businesses are largely measured on financial success. You know, it's not everything, but it's certainly one element. And that money then affords opportunities in life, but it's about having a product that I'm really proud of um, and a team that I'm really proud of. I suppose those are the two main things. You know, if you've got a product out there that's genuinely doing some difference uh, in the world, you know, I don't want to over-egg it. You know, we do we do porridge and oat milk. Um, we're not saving lives, but the you know people really enjoy them. People, it really makes a difference to lots of people's lives. And if you can do that. Um, it's really fulfilling. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's, it gives me satisfaction that I'm doing a really a good thing. Um, and then having a, a team as well, I'm really proud of, uh, is, is really important to me. You know, we employ, it's not a massive team, you know, we have 12 people, but we probably employ another 
20 people in directly through the manufacturers we work with uh, and a lot of those people rely on MoMA for their livelihoods. So um, yeah, cultivating a great team uh, is really important to me as well. I can tell, Tom, you're a very humble person, but I think you could be saving lives, giving people a healthy start to their day, making sure they eat something good that isn't processed. I think you could literally be saving someone's life and them not realise it. Well, you are. It all, it all makes a difference. You know, some people can have a more productive morning because they've got a good breakfast inside them. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why I started it because it, it generally does make a difference. Um, you know, we're... Yeah. Yeah, you could. So you, I suppose, I suppose you, in some 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 loose way, yeah, we're saving lives. Yeah, I think I just uh, do, do know, what all, he, all contributes to a better life for people. Yeah, do what Elon Musk does. You know, he's saving humanity. He's not got a space company. You know, you're you're feeding someone that might save their life, and then that person might be a doctor who goes to the hospital and saves someone else's life. You are saving lives. But, uh, yeah, yeah, no, we do have a lot of doctors eat more actually on call sure. and everything. So yeah, we're playing our part. Totally, absolutely, yeah. Well, I, I can see uh, that your um your your background you know you went to um cambridge um which yeah. i'm i'm i love that city i also spent some time there but i, I wondered what your view on education was a, a lot of a lot of people believe in university and a lot of people don't a lot of people believe that's good uh, good thing to do what, what's your experience what's your opinion I mean, I loved it. I was, I was, in terms of, I really enjoyed it. You know, I learned a lot. I met some great people. Uh, it was, it was, you know, I was very fortunate in my education. Um, <clears throat> for some careers, I think it's, it's really important. They're having the more professional careers and so on, where you need those academic uh, qualifications. For being an entrepreneur, I think not the opposite, but I, th- I think it's far less important actually. Uh, and a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs have have not got kind of a. a a kind of a conventionally well-qualified education. Um, and I think the education system in Britain generally, and probably in the world does miss a lot of stuff out. It's very academic focused. Um, it's, it trains people on certain things and the ability to learn and remember stuff, um, probably doesn't give enough to creativity, uh, and certainly a lot of the skills that people have, um, aren't really recognized at school. You know, it's, it's purely about the academic side of things. So, yeah, I think kind of success at school doesn't translate to success in life. Um, that depends a little bit on what sector you go into, but certainly from an entrepreneurial point of view, um, I'd say it helps, but it's, uh, you have to realize it, it has its place within it, you know, and it's, a, it's just part of the picture. There's a lot of skills that aren't taught at school or university that are extremely valuable for an entrepreneur and more valuable, I'd say. Mm. Well, my theory is that sometimes people go into university and things like risk get trained out of you. you. Kind of back to your point about being naive can be good. You know, sometimes you learn too much about how the world works. You'll realise that you start a business; it's a chance it will fail, so you don't try, right? Yeah, totally. And it, it's uh, yeah, the, the more you know about stuff, the more you're aware of it, and and the more kind of risk averse you get sometimes, which is a real shame. Uh, yeah, it's kind of for me. Kind of so one of the key things about being an entrepreneur is 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 take is having that appetite for risk. But um, the difference I think between a, a good entrepreneur and one that isn't so good is making sure that risk is is calculated and thought through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know it's not just based on passion and blind faith. It's based on passion, but then also kind of some some real discipline and kind of objectivity about what what they're doing. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't agree more. I'm seeing the title of your book, by the way, Appetite for Risk. Uh, later when you tell the world <laughs> how you how you built your amazing business so I, I was wonder I mean on this subject of like 
going to university and, and how you get educated in, and all, all these sorts of, I guess, building blocks to become who you are today. But do you think entrepreneurs are born or bred? Um, I would, obviously I think it's a bit of both, but kind of to focus on the bread bit, um, I do think, uh, that makes a massive difference. You know, I see people, it, I do think it's about the appetite for risk, but a lot of that is informed by how you've grown up. And like, if both of your parents, for example, are in very stable, steady jobs, you know, they're doctors or lawyers or bankers or accountants or, or whatever, you know, they may be more risk averse, which definitely impacts you growing up and you'll be less risk averse. Um, if your parents are in something more entrepreneurial, it just won't seem as much of a risk and you'll have more of an appetite for risk because you'll see it as more exciting. Um, but also it just won't seem as bad a thing. You know, the, um, I think a culture that encourages risk and, um, to be able to fail without kind of stigma attached to it is, is a really good thing and ultimately benefits that person and benefits society at large. So, um, I think it's a bit of both, you know, it's kind of, it's about kind of, yeah, being born with that slightly more, not cavalier, but kind of a bit more kind of bullish attitude to stuff and a bit more glass half full and positivity towards things maybe. But I think a lot of it is, is bred actually um, in terms of the people around you and the interactions you've had and that shapes your appetite for risk and your, and whether you get scared by risk or you get excited by it. You mentioned earlier, you, your parents were farmers. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do, do you think, I mean, I, I do see farmers as entrepreneurs, but I don't know if I see them as taking big risk as such. What was it like in your household? Was, was, was it discussed as entrepreneurial, what they were doing? How was it, how was it framed for you? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky. Kind of, uh, my dad's kind of kind of very progressive as far as farmers go. Um, you know, there's a huge variety in, in the types of farmers, and uh, you know, a lot of them are, are great. Um, some are stuck in their ways, and my dad's kind of quite progressive. Um, would always encourage us to kind of, you know, do do small projects on the side. You know, as a family business, we went into and out of several different ventures. You know, fruit farming, for example, went into and out of. Um, converting old buildings into office blocks into into rental putting solar um, panels into the farm um, all sorts of different stuff that you can do off the back of having a farm so uh, yeah it's always been very much kind of a can-do attitude an attitude of give it a go if it doesn't work then um, hopefully you've done a calculated risk on it and you know the downside of it and then you can move on to the next thing um, so yeah it, would, it, it definitely made a difference in terms of informing my approach to things you know my parents were both entrepreneurs but they were they always had slightly different roles they played one was more conservative than the other was it a similar dynamic in, in your family um i'd say so my so my my dad is uh he's kind of a real detailed guy actually so and i think uh, there's no kind of magic formula for an entrepreneur you kind of got vastly different people like you said kind of Bill Gates versus Elon Musk, for example, you know, very, very different characters. Um, and yeah, you know, my dad was kind of a, a really detailed guy. He kind of, uh, has been successful through getting into the detail and everything being all over the numbers. Um, my brother, for example, is probably a little bit more big picture on stuff and perhaps, uh, willing to take a risk a bit, a little bit earlier on, not an, uh, an uh, ill-informed risk, but kind of, you know, that threshold level of comfort is probably a little bit lower for him. Um, so yeah, the, so the, the, those, those, and I've got both of my brothers actually, and they they both kind of approach it from different points of view. And it's uh, yeah, it's about 
yeah, I suppose attitude to risk, like we said before, and kind of threshold level of comfort with things and, um, you know, how much you get into the detail of something before you feel that actually you're ready to give it a go and how much you trust your intuition. It's a blend of intuition, gut instinct, and then kind of objective, rational, detailed analysis, I think. And the, the blend of the two help kind of get to a point where you're like, okay, let's proceed with this. Do you feel like you're more gut instinct or do you go into the detail? Uh, I'm probably slightly more detailed, I'd say. Um, and uh, again, gone without wanting to labour the point, it's probably been my biggest learning over the 15 years that I've been doing WOMA is, um, you know, to start with, I was all all passion uh, and hard work. And, I, you know, I can, I've, it's something that I've, you know, I've got a real ability to work hard and a lot of resilience. Um but uh, that's not always a good thing. It can be a bit of a blessing and a curse. You know, you need to have that objectivity to say, actually, you know, when an idea isn't working and when to, to walk away and move on to the next thing. And Mom has been, um, been a brilliant business, and we, but we've had some, some really high points and some low points and some stuff that's worked and stuff that hasn't worked. And we've pivoted several times. We had stalls in train stations selling breakfast to commuters. Uh, we, we moved away from that and we started selling into offices and supermarkets and airlines focusing on birch muesli, which is our main product. So oats, yogurt, and fruit. And it's a great breakfast product. Um, we then kind of pivoted away from that and focused on porridge, which has been the mainstay of the business over the last kind of five, six years. And then that is still there as the core of the business, but oat milk is now coming through as kind of another pivot really. And another, another focus within the business. So my big learning has been actually kind of to, to be more objective with what I'm doing and actually make sure whilst I, ha- whilst I have that passion to try and view things through a clear lens and actually do that, that detail and stuff. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, as I say, kind of about the balance of that passion versus objectivity. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're a good example of this other point, which I, I always like my audience to pick up on that overnight successes take 15 years, right? The, the, the persistence piece and that permanent pivoting that, you, that you're doing in your business. I mean, COVID has brought pivoting to everyone's business, I think, but um, you know that, that whole concept that you are willing to perhaps let go of something and to try something new as a risk, it sounds like a permanent thing within your business. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It has been kind of often changing and it's interesting what you say about the overnight successes. I mean, there are a few businesses that have been overnight successes, but in my industry, for example, kind of the food industry, you know, you'll look at a business and go, Oh wow, they've just like rocketed over the last few years. But then you'll look at it and think, actually there's, there's 20 years of work behind that. Um, you know, in my line of work, Oatly is a good example, oat milk brand, you know, they're, they're, they're rocketing at the moment, but they've been going for, for 20 years. Um, and, uh, and it's the same with lots of other food businesses. Um, so yeah, it's often a lot of work's gone in behind it and being able to kind of change direction and, um, often think of like kind of sailing a boat or something, you know, you've got the same destination, but you need to change course along the way. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's making sure, you know, you, you can, as long as the destination is right, you have to change course to make sure you get out of there. It's funny. Um, I, I'm a, actually a big fan of Oatly, um, and and I, I like their brand and I like their product. And I discovered Oatly about three years ago when I sold my company and, and moved to London. I thought maybe I'll invest in Oatly. I've just discovered Oat Milk. It's amazing. So I, I'm going to you know, help them. I thought to myself. And they reached out and realised they've been like you said they've been going 17 years. 
And they just had a 200 million US dollar round um, China resources out of, out of Hong Kong and just invested in them. But I thought they were new because I just discovered them. And so, you know, to your point, you, it's, um, it, it, it's not overnight. It's, it's these things that you suddenly think have skyrocketed because you've noticed them or they have yeah. got mainstream. Had 17 years of going at it before that happened, right? Yeah, no, they've got quite a chunky valuation on them at, at the moment. But, 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 yeah, if you wanted to invest in oat milk, Simon, then you know, uh, look no further. We we should have a chat. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm I was I was looking at your website this morning, and I was literally hungry looking. I don't know how you've managed to design it, so it makes me hungry. But there's some some real clever design there because literally, I was like, I want to eat all that right now. Good oh, job. Well, thanks, that's very kind of you. I'll uh, I'll let the guys know they'll be chuffed, and uh, we're actually looking at a bit of a redesign at the moment. So have a bit more of an e-commerce focus on the website rather than, I think it's a change, same for a lot of people, you know, rather than being kind of story and product first, kind of web shop second, we're kind of changing the focus. So it's kind of primarily going to be an e-commerce focused site because that that's obviously a really growing area for everybody. Um, and it's, it's a great channel for us to be able to not be wholly reliant on supermarkets. Sure. In, in a previous life, I owned a, a, an agency called Fluid, which I sold to PwC. And one of the projects we worked on was Cadbury's uh, trying to, um, because people weren't going into the supermarket anymore and just picking up stuff in the same random way that they were. How can you create that same impulse buy on, on a shopping trolley? And it's completely different. Like, like you're saying, even the way you represent the product, it's, it has to have a complete revamp. So that's a whole new exciting challenge ahead of you, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, we kind of still so be working on that kind of over December, January, trying to roll that in next year and just, yeah, make the most of the transition to more online shopping, which is, yeah, it's just coronavirus has obviously massively accelerated that this year. You know, a lot of people shopping online and will stay shopping online, you know, even when kind of lockdown ends and so on. So, um, yeah, it's a really... Uh, it's a really roller coaster ride for the supermarkets at the moment and those traditional bricks and mortar stores and kind of how they manage that is is going to be really interesting. Mm. Well, I, I, I guess I the, we are called the Good Luck Club podcast. So I always like to talk a little bit about luck and how it plays a role in business. And um, What's your view? Have you had a lucky moment? Can you identify whether uh, luck is something that you think plays a key part in business or whether you feel like it's just random and nothing we can do about it? Yeah, definitely. I think kind of um, in a way you make your own luck, you know, it comes through a lot of hard work. And if you, if you do stuff, if you work hard enough and uh, keep sticking at it, kind of your luck will crop up anyway. Um, but yeah, there was one particular moment we had, uh, it was on our third stall in London Bridge train station. So our original stalls were filing cabinets on wheels with branding on the outside. So it was, it was really basic stuff, selling food to commuters, breakfast to commuters on their way to work. And we had a girl working on the stall at the time. And uh, she was just selling breakfast to a customer, and the customer said, "Oh, I'm 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 the buyer at Selfridges. You know, can I can we get your stock your product in Selfridges?" And the girl on the stall says, "No, sorry, we don't sell wholesale. We only sell on our stalls." And uh, the buyer kept pushing us, saying, "You know, could could we do it?" Um, and then uh, my business partner at the time was walking by and heard the person on the stall saying, "No, no, we don't sell." And then managed to grab the Selfridges buyer and say, yes, yes, we'd love to be in Selfridges. Um, so that was our first kind of listing outside of the stalls and the train station. So that was at the beginning of our transition from being a direct-to-consumer uh, model through our stalls and train stations to actually selling on shelves in a 
kind of a high-end supermarket, if you if you can call Selfridges that. So they got into Selfridges, and then that led on to Waitrose, and then on to, to Sainsbury's and Tesco, and at the same time getting into Virgin Atlantic and, and British Airways. Uh, so yeah, that, that that was our first step outside of our stalls. So uh, yeah, that was a fortuitous moment, I think. It's a great story to illustrate, I think, for my audience too, just how you know luck can play a role. Because I think there's two types of luck: there's the random luck, and then the luck you influence. And that story illustrates both. You had someone turn up that was interested, were a bit persistent, but luckily, um, at the same time, someone made sure that luck didn't slip by by making their own luck by leaning in and saying, "Hey, hold on, actually, we can do that. Let, let's let's talk." Because quite easily, that luck could have walked in the door and walked out the door. And, uh, and things would have been different. So uh, great, great illustration of what I'm trying to, I guess, share with people that, that luck is both random and controllable. Yeah, I think the kind of the more effort you put in and the more you're in, in over the detail and on top of things, the more you recognize these opportunities uh, that may otherwise have passed you by and you can kind of grab them and, you know, that call that luck or call it um, hard work. But you, you know, as you say, it's kind of a meshing of the two, really. Just stepping back to when you started the business, for my audience to understand, what were the kind of like five, six steps that you took that, that were crucial? I mean, it sounds like you sat down and, and figured out that you know, understood the market a bit and the opportunity for the for the products you were thinking about. But what, what was the process? Just give us give us some ideas so that people wanting to start businesses can get an idea of what they could do to first steps. Yeah, no, definitely kind of really interesting because there, there's a bit more to it than I um, said before. So yeah, first of all, had the idea... Uh, did the desktop research, uh, sent a survey out to people trying to kind of give a bit of verification to my theory that kind of there's an opportunity in the breakfast market. Then I I did a trial in in Waterloo in London. I went down to New Covent Garden Market, um, bought a load of fruit, um, bought a load of old water bottles, water bottles from Tesco, emptied them out, put my own labels on the outside of the bottle, spent all night blending fruit in my living room in Waterloo um, and made kind of 60 of these homemade oat smoothies. Then I went out onto the streets in Waterloo and gave them to people on the way to work and took their business card in return and then went back in after I'd given out all the smoothies or the oat smoothies, went into work, emailed another survey out to those people and um, and then got their results. You know, kind of, you know, did you like the breakfast that you got this morning on your way to work? Um, and most people did. I had a couple of um, replies. Some people saying they didn't trust the dodgy bloke under the bridge in Waterloo giving them breakfast. They didn't have it. Um, somebody else said it was so filling it made them sick, uh, which was, uh, <laughs> no, I was going for filling, but uh, yeah, I didn't want to make people sick. But anyway, I took all the positives and uh, I left my job. Um, and then I spent three months really, uh, going around the streets and train stations in London with a clicker counting the number of people walking by. So I wanted to find a location that was busy enough in the morning that had enough footfall that I could create a business. Um, but was, uh, but, but equally was there enough space that you weren't going to cause congestion. So, and when I found a, a place, I'd stand there in the morning with a clicker counting the number of people walking by. And I thought I needed 10,000 people walking by. And if 2% of them stopped, that was 200 people. And they spent two pounds each. That was 400 pounds revenue in a morning on a stall. So that was the basic idea. And I spent, um, yeah, several months doing that in, in stations and on the street around London. I got kicked out of a couple of train stations by the police for, for loitering. Kind of, they thought it was a bit, bit dodgy. Sat there with a clicker. Um, 
Anyway, then would put proposals into uh, Network Rail, who run the big train stations, into the councils. Um, I put proposals into Transport for London, who run the underground. And then finally got the go-ahead from Southern Trains, who run Waterloo East train station. And I said to them, look, I'll put a stall in place. We'll sell breakfast to your commuters. It's a great service for them. You all earn incremental revenue that you wouldn't have earned otherwise. Um, yeah, give it a go. And they, they did. And that was our first site, which we launched in. February 2006. Um, so yeah, that was that was the kind of the startup journey. Then it's, uh, you know, we then found a premises to make it. We got a railway arch in Deptford. Um, we started making all the all the products by hand in the morning. We used to start work at quarter past two in the morning, make the products, load them into the stalls, and then take the stalls to the train station and start selling breakfast to commuters. So um, yeah, it was quite a hectic first twelve months, really. I think I absolutely love it. Tom, I, I love the insight. I want my audience again to pick up on some of the, so much to unpack there. But you know, this kind of uh, grit and detail that you're illustrating, you've gone through, is something I think people overlook. Um, even myself, for that matter. I mean, I opened up a cafe. I didn't want to click how many people were going by. I just thought there's lots of people in the streets. It will be fine. So, and I wish I'd done the clicker. Uh, but that takes energy and effort. And um, and and what a lot of the things you described there as well. A lot of people that want to start their own businesses and they, I know a lot of people reach out to us saying they'd love to start a food product business they get all caught up in well we've got to get the manufacturing done we've got to get this done we've got that done. you know and your whole point of like we did the fruit ourselves and got it all grounded up and then I took some products put labels on them and made it you know there and then that kind of MVP for food minimum viable yeah. product concept that you kind of you, you, you're making I don't think MVP was even uh, really recognised as a terminology back in 2005 so you know you, you were kind of just doing it, getting it, and then checking with customers. And that standing in the street stuff, I just I just love it. And I know, you know, audience listening might be thinking, well, we're in a COVID world now. You can't stand in the street and do those things. Probably before COVID, it would be weird. Like you said, someone's standing in the street giving you food. It's, it's always going to be weird. You just wear a mask now. But that follow-up piece as well is just genius, you know, and, and that kind of direct customer feedback. I, I admire it, and uh, I want my audience to be inspired by it. So well done, Tom. No, thank you. Thank you. I think, um, well, uh, I'm conscious of time. I, I could talk to you forever. I love, I love your story. Um, I guess um, just to wrap up a, a, a few final questions. If, uh, you know, you've clearly innovated your business again and again, how do you make sure you keep that culture in your business? For my listeners out there that have businesses that are finding it hard to innovate right now, how have you managed to maintain that culture of innovation and any, any words of wisdom around innovation? Yeah, for me, for me, innovation, it goes back to kind of uh, what I've been saying, you know, it's about that combination of the passion and dreaming, you know, you've got to dream about stuff and kind of think about let your mind wonder about kind of where the gaps are and where the opportunities are, you know, if if in an ideal world, what situation, what service or product would kind of would there be? Is it something totally new? Or is it a a new take on something that's already there? So that kind of that dreaming bit is is really exciting, actually, I think. and it's then marrying that with the objective analysis that goes behind it. Um, at the moment in MoMA, for example, you know, if we're looking at a new area, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll have that brainstorm, that kind of dreaming phase about kind of what could we do, what would be really cool. And then we'll try and put it through um, a bit of a filter, really, in terms of how big is the market size, is the market growing can we make some, what's the competition like on the market? Can we actually produce this product at a price that's going to create a good enough product and give us a good enough gross margin to be able to afford 
all of the other stuff we need to do in terms of kind of paying salaries and, and marketing and all that sort of thing. So, you know, does it fit within our brand? You know, have we got a brand that can can pull this off and compete on the market? So we're really focused on anything within the oats space. Um, so if we've got something within oats where it's a growing market, it's doing well, we think we compete, we think we can, we can make a margin. We've got either the ability to manufacture ourselves or we know people who can manufacture for us. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a combination of that kind of that dreaming and intuition and uh, insights in the market, uh, combined with that rational, objective, detailed analysis of whether that opportunity is going to translate to a successful business. Yeah, make makes total sense. It's um, definitely a, a difficult matchup, isn't it? You're kind of talking about like aspirational uh, and, and with logic. Which, which is, is an interesting combo, trying, trying to have that kind of, yes, we, we dream of doing this, but you know, are we supported by enough people walking past our store kind of idea? You know, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at a business. It's very smart, I think, for people to try and back it up with some facts, but still have the dream. So it's a good way of looking at innovation, I think. Do you, um, if you uh, went back to your younger self and gave some advice, anything that jumps out? Yeah, I suppose from the uh, from from the business point of view, it would be that point about object objectivity and staying objective about things. Um, from a personal point of view, it would be keep learning. I think it's something that uh, I, I I'm one of these people who sometimes, or certainly kind of in my 30s, didn't keep a particularly good balance, uh, and you know, was, I got really really absorbed in the business uh, to the detriment of kind of most of the things in my life, I'd say. Uh, and I think it's really important to try and keep that balance. And, and the best people uh, on our team and generally are the people that kind of work really hard, but then leave work at work um, enables them to keep, uh, to keep a little bit more focused, I think. Um, so the, uh, yeah, that's kind of, you know, where I'd come from. Yeah. The balance point is a really tricky one, isn't it? That kind of, it's always thrown around, isn't it? Work-life balance, which I think is definitely one of the things that entrepreneurs find hard to get, to get right, especially driven entrepreneurs. Um, it's not easy. No, it's really hard. And as I said, there's no kind of magic um, formula for for the right entrepreneur. There's different people that do it in different ways and some people that throw everything into it and some people that do manage to get that balance. Um, I personally think if you can get that balance, it, it, it's, a, it's a really good thing if you can. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not easy to do. Permanent adjustment really based on where you're at in your life. Right? You've got two kids now. I mean, that's very different to when you started the business too. So that changes things, doesn't it? Yeah, I would have, I would have, in the frame of mind I was when I started the business, it would have been really hard to kind of, uh, to have kids at that stage. Um, and you're particularly in the early days, you know, to have a proper relationship or anything like that as well. So, um, yeah, and it was kind of really full on and the more innovative and risky and new your idea, probably the more work in a way it's going to be sometimes because the, the, the more unknowns you've got to grapple with. Yeah. I had to marry my business partner for, for it to work for me. So I, I know what you mean. I mean, just that's one way around it. Yeah, yeah, one way around it. Just touching on that, you're a sole founder. I mean, this is this also feels like a hard route for my listeners listening. What what's your experience with being a sole founder? Do you do you have regrets on that, or do you think it was the right thing for you? What's your what's your view? The um, so it's yeah. I I would say to people, um, if you have a business partner, there's benefits because you can share the load a little bit, and you can both bring different skills to it. Uh, it's important that you, if you have a business partner, I think that you do bring different skills rather than just skills that 
overlap each other. Um, I would say to people, make sure, really make be careful about that choice of a business partner because I think you know, there's a lot of stories of business partnerships uh, that don't work out, um, and you obviously don't hear those stories because they because they don't work out. So um, yeah, I, I just caution to people actually about kind of automatically assuming you need a business partner when you go into business. You know, if you feel you can do it on your own and you would rather than get a business partner, just employ somebody to do a lot of the, the, the take a lot of the stuff off your plate that you can kind of farm out to somebody else, then um, I would just encourage people to critically look at that rather than assuming that they need to go into business with somebody else. Um, it's not to say they shouldn't do at all. There's a lot of very successful business partnerships and that synergy between two people can can really work wonders, but um, but it can also not be How how have you coped with it? Have you how have you managed to? I mean, I always think being an entrepreneur is quite lonely. You know, you if you, you can't go home necessarily and moan to your family, they don't want the stress put on them, and you don't want them to worry. You can't moan to your team. How do you manage that part? Yeah, I suppose the um, my wife's great actually, my wife Hetty. So I'll kind of often chat to her about lots of stuff in the business, and it's I think it's really important to have people you can chat to, whether that's uh, your partner. Um, you know, without wanting to burden them too much, but you know, I, she's really familiar with what's happening in the business and, you know, her point of view is really, really good as well. And just kind of, it's really helpful to have that outside perspective on something, whether it's, you know, team issues or strategy issues within the business, it's really good just to kind of get that third party perspective. And it's also good if you can to kind of get kind of peers in the, um, in the working environment to so other entrepreneurs or other people doing in, in the working world that you can meet with confidentially. Um, and I've done that a little bit. I'm not doing it at the moment. So I need to restart it. We had a, a team of, of six of us who would, would meet once a month or once every two months and have a, you know, totally confidential conversation where kind of no holes barred, you can say whatever you want. And it's a really refreshing way to get stuff off your chest and get honest advice from people because everybody struggles with stuff. Everybody's got issues going on. Um, whether it's about the marketplace more often than not it's about different people on the team and kind of personnel issues and getting people's help on that sort of stuff is really, really useful. And, and you'll find that your input can really help other people as well. Great advice and totally true. I always tell people the most important deal you'll ever do is the partner you select in life that person you can respect them they can give you an opinion you value and if you can have someone you can trust to talk to in your life it's amazing and i love the network point it's very much core of what we're doing here at the purposeful project we have an entrepreneur network helping other entrepreneurs so that no one feels alone i think it's very very important so it's, it's great to hear that you've got that and i think it's very important for people out there listening to realize that they should absolutely put their hand up and get help because we're all going through these problems or we have all been through them at some point. Anyone that's built a business will have problems. And often these problems are not unique, although you might think they are for you, they're not. Um, you can get help and advice from people that have been through it. So thanks for highlighting that, Tom. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to sum up some of the points I've taken from you today and um, for my audience to quickly, sometimes people skip to the end so they can listen to to some of the things I think they should go back and, and go into in detail. I, I love this um, naive is good. We kind of talked about earlier. I, I, I do think that's, that's such 
an important element to starting a business. Sometimes don't overanalyze it. Equally, however, I do love this point you've also brought up, which is kind of dream, but marry it with objective analysis. That's also a great way of looking at it. And if you're not good at the objective analysis, maybe that's when you should get a founder in or partner in to help you do that. But if you're good at the dreaming part, which a lot of people are good at one or the other, um, then then it's, it's very interesting to think about the two in, in hand in hand, because I think it does make a huge difference. I think about my own failures in business. If I'd been a little bit more uh, objective analyst and a little less dreamy, they may have worked. Um, I'm sure Elon Musk wouldn't agree. It's all about the dream. But I do think that the getting the two in balance is really important. I like this keep learning point, which is very true, uh, very important. I think anyone out there entrepreneurs wise right now that's working hard don't forget to keep learning because there's lots of new things like I'm learning about YouTube right now I mean there's just so many new things out there and just to keep that keep learning mantra going that Tom's brought up today I think is really really important I think the be objective and passionate element is uh, is also very important this work-life balance is a never-ending struggle if you're feeling a, the difficulty of work-life balance then don't worry so so am I so is Tom it's just normal um, I, I think it's uh, bring different skills to the table when it comes to partnerships. That's such an important piece of advice from Tom there. Want people to note it. You know, I, I think you can start a business on your own. But, you know, of course, having a co-founder can be really, really useful. It's not the only way to go. But if you do have a co-founder, I agree completely with Tom's point that you've got to make sure they have different skills to you. So you don't manage each other for a start, but also so that you can, of course, bring more value to the business that you're both both involved in. So... I will close by just saying how much admiration I have this concept of that stand in the street and sell, you know, stop making excuses for not starting your business. Now, already, as soon as I say it, you're like, well, it's COVID, I can't stand in the street. There's still people in the street, wear a mask, you know, stand in the street and then just as important, follow up. And uh, 15 years from now, you could be Tom. Tom, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Purposeful Project podcast today. If you got any value from this podcast, then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback. And if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real-life successful entrepreneur, then feel free to share. And of course, go and visit purposefulproject.com and join our mailing list at any point. Thanks again for listening.